Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 20th, 2018, and my guest is historian and author, Jerry Mueller. He is professor of history at Catholic University. His latest book is The Tyranny of Metrics, and that book is the subject of today's episode. Jerry, welcome to Econ Talk. Pleasure to be with you. What is the tyranny of metrics? The tyranny of metrics is a widespread pattern in contemporary organizational life that runs across everything from business through medicine, through policing, through higher education, K-12 education, and even philanthropy. It's a pattern that I'd define as follows. Uh, it's, first, it's, it, it, it's based on several beliefs which, taken on their own, sound plausible, but in combination turn out to be counterproductive, uh, are often counterproductive. So the first is the emphasis on standardized measurement, the notion that our judgment is unreliable, experience and talent don't really matter so much. What really matters is measuring performance. So the first part of it is the metric part, that is the belief that it's possible and desirable to replace judgment with numerical indicators of comparative performance based on standardized data. And the second related notion is uh, that the best way to motivate people within organizations is by attaching rewards and penalties to their measured performance. So sometimes those, often those rewards are monetary rewards, and often enough they're they're reputational. And then the third notion is that is connected with the idea of transparency and accountability. And that is that the way to make professional organizations, professionals or government organizations uh, accountable to the public is by making the standardized measures of their performance uh, public. And as I say, each of these ideas sounds plausible. You measure, reward, and punish. You make public. Uh, but they often end up having unintended negative consequences. And that's what the book is about. And that's what I mean by the tyranny of metrics. It's not about the evils of measurement. Measurement's often desirable. Uh, it's not about the evils of uh, rewarding people through remuneration and, and other forms, uh, but it's about the way in which this use of, as I say, standardized metrics to replace judgment, that's the, really the key theme, that uh, you can use standardized metrics to replace judgment and experience and come up with workable organizations. Of course, the challenge is that judgment can be capricious, wrong, <laughs> unjustified, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, involve nepotism, sexism, racism. Mm -hmm. uh, so judgment has a bad name these days, and numbers have a gloss of scientific precision. Uh, mm -hmm. 
And that seems like an improvement. Why isn't it? Uh, well, because some of those things are both uh, true but not true if you <laughs> universalize them. That is to say, issues of uh, judgment is under attack, both for being linked to, to bias or prejudice, as you say. And then, of course, there's the whole field of behavioral psychology that delights in demonstrating uh, how our biases lead us to misestimate numerical values and probabilities and so on. Uh, but there are, and in that sense, measurement can be useful uh, in to partially counteract or to inform judgment. The, the issue as I see it is that measurement can't replace judgment. That is to say, you need judgment to decide First of all, what's worth measuring? Because often the things that are most easily measured are not particular, not the most important ones for the organization. And secondly, you need judgment to decide uh, how to evaluate the relative significance of what gets measured. And thirdly, you need judgment because there are lots of important things in organizations that. Uh, simply can't be measured in any standardized way. A person with judgment can uh, give them a, a numerical uh, valuation, can say that uh, employee X uh, on criterion Y rates a 5 out of 5 as opposed to a 3 out of 5, but that, but that rating needn't necessarily be, uh, for some qualities, uh, uh, have to do with qualities that cannot be measured uh, and that are often at least as significant as the things that can be measured in terms of the successful functioning of an organization. So we had a recent episode with Brian Kaplan mm -hmm. on education. Brian's very skeptical about whether your practical, excuse me, formal education, years of schooling, sitting yeah. in the classroom leads to much. Uh, and mm -hmm. he sees uh, for example, college education is mainly a signal of persistence, diligence, and uh, conformity that, mm -hmm. that students send out to the labor force. Of course, there's some truth to that. Mm -hmm. The most interesting, one of the most interesting pieces of that conversation with him was where I argued that much of what we learn in in college and, and in in high school and below is not measurable, mm -hmm. but it's, but real. Uh, that that yes. it's how to think and how to imagine and how to explore and all kinds of intellectual curiosity. And there's some of that in your book. So I'd mm -hmm. like to start with that. Let's talk about education where mm -hmm. evidence has been uh, objective measures of success, test scores and other measures are used more and more widely, at least for a while. Mm -hmm. Give us a little bit of that history and uh, where you stand on this question of uh, education and, and wh whether it can, what can be measured. Right. So – the field of K-12 education is one where this metric fixation, uh, this combination of standardized measurement, pay for performance, and uh, publication of results in the, in the name of accountability has been most intense. And it was actually partly by following those debates that I got more interested in the kinds of issues that eventually let me, led me to write this book, The Tyranny of Metrics, uh, when no child left behind. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a there's a much longer backstory to the idea of uh, measuring educational performance and rewarding schools and teachers accordingly. Uh, back in the 1860s, 
uh, in Britain, uh, a liberal parliamentarian by the name of Robert Lowe, uh, uh, put together a, essentially a pay-for-performance plan for public schools, where they were going to uh, inspectors were going to go into the school each year and test the children on how well they did in reading and arithmetic, and the schools were going to be penalized if the students didn't do well enough. And uh, one of my intellectual heroes, uh, Matthew Arnold, the poet and cultural critic whose day job was as an inspector of schools, said, what you're going to do here is you're going to end up uh, first of all, you're going to end up penalizing students in and schools uh, where in areas where the students are are poor and less well off because they won't show up for school and they won't be as um, they won't be as successful on the tests. And also, you'll narrow the focus of school uh, of schooling to the kinds of things that are that are tested by the inspector. Well, all of this then recurred in the course of uh, the late 20th century, and, and, it, and it reached its sort of uh, paradigmatic embodiment in No Child Left Behind, which was passed in the early years of the George W. Bush administration with Democratic and, uh, and Republican support. And at first, and, and that was based on the idea of testing students in schools and uh, publicizing the results and uh, re and rewarding and punishing schools uh, based on the results, including the possibility of closing down schools. Uh, so I, all just, of that, I just want to interject, yeah. interject one thing. Yeah. Uh, this was a federal mandate imposed on local school districts in frustration, mm -hmm. possibly. Who knows what the mm -hmm. real reasons were? But part of the justification was the frustration. These school districts didn't seem to do a very good job. Then right. they weren't accountable. But here we would publish, we would measure and then publish and make accountable, all which are really attractive goals on paper. Exactly. And that's the way it sounded to me at first. <laughs> and then I began to encounter uh, young teachers who told me uh, this was having a, a demoralizing effect upon them, the fact that they had to uh, narrow and uh, tailor their teaching to the requirements of this test. And then I went to a panel uh, around 2003, 2004 at, at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, where one of the panelists was uh, Checker Finn, who was a big advocate of this sort of thing. And the other was Diane Ravitch, who had begun as an advocate of what was then called educational reform, but by then had become very skeptical about it. And as I followed the literature on that, uh, and there's been a lot of literature on it, and it's actually increased in recent years, um, it became clear that uh, this whole, what was known as the educational reform movement, I mean, it had several branches. Part of it had to do with charter schools and greater school choice and so on, which I think is actually a, a plausible idea. But a good deal of it was, uh, was based on this metric fixation. And the more and more evidence that came out, the more it showed that it actually didn't work uh, in a couple of senses. Uh, first of all, it, did, it had absolutely no effect on one of the major, major motivations behind No Child Left Behind, which was to close the so-called achievement gap between uh, whites on the one hand and uh, black and Hispanic students on the other. Asian students actually did better on the whole than whites, but people didn't pay much attention to that. Um, so it's been going on for, um, oh, actually, since uh, this kind of thing has been going on since uh, about 1992, and it got more intense with No Child Left Behind. It's had absolutely no effect 
on the achievement gap. Uh, what it has had is had it's had a tremendous effect on K to 12 education in the public school system because more especially. Uh, for schools that deal with lower performing students, uh, but to some degree well beyond that, it's narrowed the range of, of subjects that are taught and it's narrowed the way in which subjects like English are taught so that they're taught to try to maximize student achievement on the tests as opposed to being able to write a long form essay or being able to read a novel or a play and so on. So it's uh, not only has it not had the intended effects of uh, lowering the uh, of uh, narrowing the achievement gap, but it's had the unintended effects in many ways of making education uh, uh, narrower and less functional. And and actually, AEI had a conference about this a couple of months ago, and that was the upshot of a lot of the papers, as well as a recent book by this fellow uh, Dan Koritz from the. Uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education. So, and but but I found but then I found that we can talk about this in field after field that when this was tried, uh, by and large, it hadn't worked. Now the people who specialize in measuring these things are loath to say to say that in such stark terms. They say the results were difficult to measure, or there were some minor improvements, or there were improvements for one group in one grade, but it didn't last through the end of high school and so on. Uh, uh, so what's so striking when you read through a lot of this literature on uh, pay for performance and standardized perfor uh, standardized measurement combined with pay for performances, how often the scholarly literature shows in variety of fields that it doesn't work, and yet uh, politicians, policymakers, they don't seem to get the message. And now this whole regime of metric fixation is being ex is being extended to the realm of higher education as well, and everywhere else, as we'll talk and about. Every, and everywhere else, right? But what's your thought on this? So that was a great summary. But what's your thought on this issue of? Uh, and it's beyond the scope of the book, uh, but I'm just curious because I. I noticed in a few places that you, you do talk about it in passing, that mm -hmm. that everything is in principle measurable. So one one response to the mm -hmm. to that literature would be, it's not mine, but one response mm -hmm. could be, well, we just didn't do it correctly. We just need to measure it better. We just need right. better tests. We need tests that are less um, uh, rote, that are more expansive, that uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Uh, respond to that to that argument and the general idea that education should be in theory and in principle and in reality testable. Right. So there are, in some respects, testing is genuinely useful. And this is one of the points that I make when, when standardized measures of performance are used by practitioners to diagnose what they're doing in their practice, then they can be genuinely useful. So a teacher uh, can have can have her students take some standardized test uh, of arithmetic or math or English, and she can see how they're doing. To what degree are they catching on? It doesn't have to be a standardized test from outside 
that's imposed from outside the classroom. Of course, it could be one that she creates. And that's a way of keeping track of how the students seem to be doing on that particular slice of the subject. Uh, so in that sense, testing is fine. Uh, what, what, when testing becomes counterproductive and pernicious is when it's connected to reward and punishment, reward and punishment of the teacher or reward and punishment of the school. Uh, that's, that, that's, when it becomes, uh, that's when it becomes problematic. And, and then, of course, many of the most important things that go on in any institution, including certainly in schools and universities, uh, can't be measured. Uh, the degree to which in school uh, children are taught to uh, behave, uh, taught to cooperate, uh, taught to be self-controlled. Uh, all of those things are difficult to measure, and yet they're by no means the least important thing that goes on in the school. Uh, the way in which intellectual curiosity in a variety of subjects is or is not uh, cultivated, uh, that's difficult to that's difficult to measure. And of course, that's, that's one of the problems with the Brian Kaplan book, uh, is that on the what, first of all, he has an extremely materialistic and economistic conception of how to measure things, namely, uh, namely your, your salary, as if that's the only thing that counts in life. It is an important thing in life, but it's not the only thing that counts in life. Uh, and then, of course, his belief that only those things that you can measure are, are real. So there's all these intangible elements uh, that go on in K-12 education and go on in college education. Uh, you know, when I, when I engage my students in a class, as I did this morning on the family in the market, and I uh, arouse their interest and they say something and another student refutes it, or I ask something that calls it in the question, and they have to think dialogically and dialectically, uh, all of that develops skills that really matter in life and in the world, but uh, they'd be very good, difficult to uh, measure through some standardized test. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to your point. I, I fundamentally agree with it, but I'm going to challenge it in a different way. Partly the way I think Brian might, but I think also in a way that he might not, but I will, mm -hmm. which is that you know, I agree with you that all those intangibles, those non-measurables, those immeasurables, those key parts of education, such as uh, cultivating curiosity, uh, encouraging dialogue, uh, intellectual challenges, uh, internal dialogue, uh, mm -hmm. skepticism, these are what mm -hmm. a great education should involve. Right. And but you and I also know mm -hmm. that whether you measure them or not, they're really hard to get people to work on. So I think, you know, one argument would be, well, it's true we can't measure them, but people don't do it. It's not like, well, that's what people are spending all their time on at the at the expense of more measurable things. They're not doing a good job, period. There, there's so many mediocre teachers in in schools, K through 12 and in college who teach by by rote, who 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 do give uh who teach to a test that's not a very good test their own perhaps <laughs> uh <laughs> that, that doesn't challenge the students that doesn't change their 
their focus and, and, and the way they perceive the world or their their deep sense of knowledge and wisdom. And these uh, imperfect tests at least mean that something's going to get done in the classroom. I think that would be the best defense that, that some folks could come up with. Do you, are you sympathetic to that at all? Uh, a little bit, but, you know, there's a larger point here, and that is the fact that some institution is not working as well as we would like it to or producing the results that we think is desirable doesn't mean that uh, instituting metric fixation, this combination of, of standardized measurement, reward and punishment, and, uh, and publicizing the results, it doesn't mean that that's going to make the organization better. In other words, that's true of a lot of life. The fact that a situation is problematic doesn't mean that the solution that you have at hand is actually going to make the situation better. And what I are, what I am inclined to argue is that in many cases it actually makes the situation worse. Yeah, so it's not that it's not that I deny the problem; it's that I'm skeptical of the efficacy of the of the proposed solution. Yeah, it's very well said. I, I, you know, this reminds me, and there's there's an example or two in your book of this where people will say, "Well, this this situation uh, doesn't it, the outcomes aren't attract are not attractive." So what we need. Right are, say, incentives. We need the things mm -hmm. that make market outcomes work really well, so we'll just put mm -hmm. those in. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, it, in my conversation with Diane Ravitch, and we'll put a link up to that old episode, which is quite a while ago, it's exactly what it came down to. She was was horrified at the uh, solution of, of, quote, running a school like a business. Right. Uh, I certainly agree with that. You shouldn't run a school like a business. It doesn't mean a business couldn't run a school well uh, in in. In, in today's world, there are a lot of charter schools run by nonprofits and maybe for-profits. I think we have the potential to do a good job. But certainly because businesses work well, using carrots and sticks means that schools could do that too. Imposing that from the top down does not create the institutional infrastructure that a market creates en route to the outcomes that, that we like about markets. And so I think that's um, – I think that's an incredibly important point that, that yeah, this isn't working well, uh, so we'll just – We'll just jam in these incentives, and we know incentives work. They do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the problem, as you point out many times, uh, as you point out in the book, is that they work too well. They People respond to the incentives rather than the ultimate uh, goals of the, um, of the institution. Yes, and we should come back to that. But let me say a little bit about this notion of running a school like a business. What actually happens is the schools, the schools and other non-profit-making institutions on whom uh, metric fixation is imposed is they don't actually run like a business. Uh, they're made to run like a simplified uh, caricature of a business. <laughs> that is to say, in real business, it's true that there is a bottom line, but people within a business organization have motivations uh, over and above those of monetary reward. That's certainly an important one, but there are other ones that, uh, that are important for the functioning of the organization that have to do with uh, intrinsic motivation, that is, to wh what degree do people find the job interesting or to what degree do they find the job significant. And then there are qualities that are unmeasurable, like 
mentoring or cooperating with, uh, with one's fellow employees that are actually essential to a profit-making business too. And one of the problems in profit-making businesses where metric fixation has taken hold is that it also, in this, in this simplified caricature of how people work, this notion that they have a kind of Pavlovian response to material incentives, it actually has a distorting effect in businesses too. So first of all, there are differences between businesses and schools. And secondly, even in businesses, the the use of this uh, kind of uh, simplified conception of human nature turns out to be counterproductive. And then as people like, as many people now, but uh, for example, uh, Henry Mintzberg, a really fascinating uh, professor of management at McGill has pointed out, uh, and James Q. Wilson did this in a, in a, in a different way. Uh, ultimately, businesses do have a kind of single bottom line. Uh, but institutions like schools or universities or government agencies uh, don't have one single purpose. They have a multiplicity of purposes. And if you just try to focus them on one or two of those purposes, the other important parts of the organization, the other important uh, goals of the organization are not going to be well served. And actually may be corrupted. I mean, I, yes, I'm uh, as uh Many listeners know this podcast is uh, sponsored by Liberty Fund, which is a foundation in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, which does fabulous educational things. They publish mm-hmm. books, they run conferences, and mm-hmm. they have the Library of Economics and Liberty, of which economic of which econ talk is a part. Yes. And I, I am paid a fixed amount to mm-hmm. generate these uh, episodes by by mm-hmm. Liberty Fund, and mm-hmm. you could they could instead say uh, we're not going to just pay you a fixed amount. We're going to pay you based on the number of, of downloads. Mm-hmm. And that is a reasonable thought. Uh, of, mm-hmm. It's a reasonable measure of success. It's one I use personally in, in, in looking and evaluating my performance as, as, the, as the host. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it could be that was the way I was compensated. Mm-hmm. I'm not, but it could be. It's not an unreasonable mm-hmm. idea. And, and it, there is a huge pressure, in, and you mentioned it in, in passing in one chapter, a huge pressure by uh, boards of directors for philanthropic organizations for charities to to measure stuff, be yes. more oriented toward results, not just feeling good about what you're doing. And that's basically you know, with the effective altruism movement we've talked about here on the program with with William McCaskill. It's not it's not a bad idea. It's not it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a good idea in general to mm-hmm. to care about what happens, not just whether you think you're doing a good job. So that's okay. The challenge is yes. how do you measure it? And as you point out, and so. If we'd measured this podcast by downloads only, for mm-hmm. one one challenge would be I'd, I'd have an incentive to become corrupt, literally corrupt, to fake mm-hmm. d- downloads to get people to download it who aren't going to listen to it. Obviously, that could happen. Absolutely. But, but the bigger problem would be it would change the way I run the program, the kind mm-hmm. of guests I have. And um, I have deliberately chosen a style of, of for the for the program that I think is educational. Mm-hmm. I hope it's a little bit entertaining as well, but – that style limits the number of listeners to some extent. Um, and I think it's just a profoundly non-obvious thing because – and I say non-obvious because so many people do it anyway to, – to, to choose some measure because that way we'll have incentives. Uh, and, and it's just um, 
it's dangerous, actually. <laughs> right. So, so this is actually a fabulous example that you've hit upon. I mean, one of the reasons I'm pleased to be on Econ Talk is that I have listened to Econ Talk a lot over the years and learned a lot from it. And sometimes I've gone out and bought the books, or sometimes uh, I've simply assimilated ideas which have then found their way into my own work. Now, that's something that's, um, it's not difficult to measure. It's impossible to measure. But you, but you know that the people who, and it's actually sort of known among a certain class of listeners of Econ Talk, that uh, Econ Talk has a sort of high level of listeners. And, uh, and in that sense, it's very effective. But as you say, we, we could be talking about something uh, much more uh, uh, popular or sensationalistic or whatever, and you could have more more listeners and your metrics would be better, but you wouldn't really be accomplishing your goal and either would your employer. And some people might say, we just need better measures. So I'm, I was happy to see in a recent book that, that I get, a, that EcoTalk gets acknowledged as being useful. That's lovely. Uh-huh. So we could yeah. use that as the measure. It won't just be how many <laughs> downloads, it'll be how many books mention EcoTalk in passing. And then that encourages right. me. To, uh-huh. to work with prospective authors to uh, suck up to them and hope that they'll mention Econ Talk and maybe ask them directly and then they get turned. It's just, it, right. it, 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 un, it opens up a chain of consequences that uh, are uncertain. And I, w- I want to turn to that uh, now, which is, as, you, as you've said already, and it, it's mentioned many times in the book, uh, one of the results of these kinds of incentives and metric fixation is is unintended consequences. And I want to yes. ask two questions. Mm-hmm. One, why are they inevitably, seemingly, why are they inevitably negative unintended consequences? And mm-hmm. secondly, are you sure they're unintended? Uh, cause, uh-huh. Because yes. because yes. you, you yeah. and I, if, if you, I mean, you're, you've thought about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in the top, I'd say, half of a percent, maybe even higher, of people who've thought about how complicated incentives are. Mm-hmm. I'm in the top something. I, I'm an economist. That's kind of our job. Mm-hmm. So, so when someone, if, if I'm on the board of a charity and someone says, well, let's incentivize the, the director, but we'll, we'll make their pay based on such and such. And my first right. thought is, you know, I'm going to start thinking right away. Gee, what's right. that going to lead to? And you mm-hmm. are too. You're, you're mm-hmm. quote, only an historian, Jerry, but you clearly <laughs> know a lot of economics. Uh-huh. You're not certified as an economist, but you know a lot. You've read a ton. And I've written right. a book about essentially unintended consequences of incentives, the wrong mm-hmm. kind. And so you'd think of these things. Don't other people think of these things? And secondly, why are, why are they, maybe, they're, maybe they're on purpose. Right. So sometimes they – so one of the effects of, of uh, measuring performance and then uh, rewarding and punishing it is that people in the organization will indeed focus – on what gets measured and rewarded. And sometimes that's in keeping with what the leadership or the CEO or management want. But often enough, uh, they want that because (laughs) they actually haven't thought through the consequences very well. Because in many, in most organizations, they have multiple purposes. And in most jobs, there are multiple facets. I mean, if you're if you're in a standardized job, 
where you're, you know, flipping hamburgers or you're changing windshields uh, or something like that, where there's not much room, where there is actually sort of really one function. It's not very intrinsically interesting. There's not much room for innovation. Uh, mentoring and cooperation doesn't matter that much. Well, then measuring and rewarding uh, may work. But in, as I say, in most jobs, there are multiple facets to the job. And one of the uh, unintended negative effects is that if you, uh, is that people will actually focus upon what gets measured and rewarded at the expense of the other parts of the job and the other purposes of the organization uh, that aren't being measured and rewarded in a way that can be ultimately dysfunctional. So that's one of the first unintended consequences. Uh, a second, of course, is a whole is a second unintended consequence that people who try to implement these things from the top typically forget about is how much time it takes <laughs> to actually input the yeah. information, analyze it, and so on, and that that is time taken away from doing the activity that is nominally being measured. So that's another factor. Uh, and then there's the whole uh, realm of gaming the metrics, that is to say of attaining the metrics uh, in a way that is at odds with the actual uh, goals and purposes of the organization. And, uh, you know, part of my book is a, is a catalog of that, of all the way, uh, so uh, uh, of which the most uh, perhaps dramatic example uh, is teaching to the test, actually orienting the education in a, in a K-12 uh, classroom towards the narrow range of skills that are required to take a test, including simply having the students practice taking a test more and more. What could be more pedagogically deadening than that, but it could also improve the metrics. Uh, or to take uh, another example, uh, you know, some years ago, the National Health Service in Britain uh, had a lot of complaints about the fact that waiting times to be admitted to the hospitals were, were too long. So they declared that hospitals would be penalized if the waiting time to get into the, to be admitted to the hospital was, was, uh, four hours or more. So what did some of the, so some of the hospitals did the following when they had patients coming in by ambulance and they knew that the wait was going to be more than four hours, they would have the ambulance circle around the hospital until they could admit the patients within four hours, which sounds kind of amusing at first with, until you think about the fact that there were then patients sitting at home waiting to get picked up by those ambulances who weren't picked up in a timely way. So the hospital could you know, meet its metrics uh, in a way that was transparent, uh, but uh, with negative effects for the actual purposes of the institution. So one of the things that metric fixation does is it turns us all into gamers. Yeah, there's an example that I think uh, that that by the way that example is so horrific that I I'm a little bit skeptical about it because it's uh -huh. you know <laughs> I understand the incentive to do that it's 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 so ugly but of course as you point out and I, this I when I I'm sure is true mm -hmm. doctors will refuse. Patients, uh, because they're afraid the surgery is too risky or the outcome won't go well, and then their success rate that gets published will look bad, and then they won't 
right? Don't and look that, like the doctors. That, and that happens all that hap, happens all the time. Once these uh, surgical report cards were instituted, by which uh, by which uh, surgeons' rates of success were uh, success and failure were publicized. So many of them, at least some of them. Uh, reacted by what we call creaming or cherry picking or selection bias goes under a number of names, but it basically means the same thing. You take the cases uh, where you're more likely to be successful and you turn down the cases, for example, patients with uh, comorbidities and and complex situations where you're where the risks are greater and uh, and so you're less light, likely to succeed. And of course, the people that pay for that are the people who don't get operated on, which you don't see in the yep. metrics. Yeah, but your point about ambulances reminds me of something I've I've never seen, but I suspect is true, which is that I've noticed that airlines will tell you the scheduled arrival of a flight, and I, and and it seems way out of line with how long the flight's going to take. But that's Absolutely. I think yes. I assume that's because they keep track of how many times a flight is more than a late flight is fifteen minutes or more past uh, the expected arrival, and so they just build a cushion in to reduce exactly. their their bad their badly uh, their bad performance measure. That's exactly the causal chain. Uh, so then I want to raise the question, which you didn't answer, because it's an unpleasant thing to think about, or you uh-huh. just gave a. You got uh, derailed. It's either one uh, about whether some of these are intended. I want to give. I want you to talk about um, what happens in the in the world of police and policing mm-hmm. because I, this mm-hmm. is such a depressing and um, human response to measurement that yes. has happened in police around the country. So talk about uh, how this uh, the tyranny of metrics works in uh, with police and the FBI. Sure. So. This is an excellent example of two things that people confuse, and that is the the use of metrics for diagnosis by practitioners versus the use of metrics for reward and punishment. So one of the one of the tools that's gotten a lot of attention in the last two decades is is CompStat, these uh, computerized statistics that were first developed uh, by the police, I believe, in New York, and since have been adopted in many other cities. And they have uh, uh, an informational diagnostic element. That is to say, they they using GIS and so on. They map. Uh, where crimes are occurring almost in real time, and that can be very valuable in terms of deciding you know where you're going to deploy squad cars and things like that. But then there's another element that often goes with it, and that is there are these weekly sessions in which uh, in which district commanders uh, have to defend uh, the rate of crime and so on in their uh, in their district, and in many places, their uh, their promotions are attached to the to the issue of whether crime goes down in their district. Now, of course, in good part, uh, so so part of making crime go down in their district is uh, something that's uh, amenable to improvement by where they deploy police and how they deploy police and so on. Uh, but much of it has to do with you know who who lives in the neighborhood and all sorts of other things. Things beyond uh, so, the control so of the police. Things, <laughs> things that are beyond the control of the police. So when they're told, for example, by politicians that 
like a, somebody who's running for mayor will typically be challenged by someone else who says, oh, the crime rate is too high. So the mayor tells the police commissioner, the crime, we have to cut the, the crime rate by 5% by the end of the year. And he tells that to the commanders and he tells that to the to the cop uh, in the car and the cops on, and the police on the street. Well, they actually can't cut down crime by the actual incidence of crime by 5%. But what they can cut down is the official reporting of crime by 5%. And there's been many, many documented cases of this uh, in various places in the United States, but also in Great Britain and elsewhere. And that is police who are told that they're that their promotion or whatever depends on uh, cutting the rate of major crimes. Uh, and, and the major there's, there's four major crimes that go into the FBI's uh, index of, uh, of, of major crime indicators. So what they end up doing often is taking crimes that ought to be classified as felonies and classifying them as misdemeanors. Uh, so what ought to be grand theft becomes uh, minor theft. Uh, what ought to be aggravated assault becomes uh, something much more minor and so on. So they so this is gaming the metrics through reclassification. Uh, and in some cases, they simply uh, crimes are reported to the police and they simply don't record it at all so that it doesn't make its way into the metrics. So all of this then has a corrupting effect on the uh, diagnostic value of the uh, metrics that are being gathered. But again, uh, the politicians can brag about the fact that they've cut the crime rate by 5% or they've increased tech test scores by X percent or what have you. Well, that's where I wanted to raise this pretty cynical and not so attractive thought that Maybe it's not unintended. Maybe it's tended. So intended. So you, you use this metric, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and so they get reclassified, mm -hmm. and the police look good. The uh -huh. politician looks good. Uh, the people who live in the neighborhood know that it's maybe, maybe some of them realize that actually crime's going up, not down, or real mm -hmm. crime hasn't changed at all. Mm -hmm. And but the system kind of incentivizes everybody to to use this this fake. Uh, cheerleading metric that uh, can be waved around and uh, and actually here's the irony it it reduces accountability that's that's the incredible part of it yes no I I, I think that's quite right and you know one of my other criticisms of the use of metric fixation is that it it, it tends to reduce initiative and entrepreneurialism within organizations. But as someone pointed out to me when I gave a talk on this recently, there actually is a lot of initiative and entrepreneurialism, but it's in gaming the metrics as opposed to improving the result. And I think that's what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the, the alternatives and, and the reality that, that these, these, these techniques are extremely appealing to, to everybody except you and me and, and a few other people who are worried about these kind of effects. They uh -huh. do give the, the they, they do operate under the guise of, uh, of scientific precision. Mm -hmm. They appear to be uh, leveraging the, the um, incentive effects that, that often are attractive in certain 
organic systems like markets. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're everywhere, as you point out. There and you, many many chapters of the. It's a short book, but there are many mm-hmm. chapters. And chapters are short. It's like I think a nice uh, design element. Uh, basically, and, and if if I can add something to to that, Russ, uh, they're also often connected to. Uh, what I call, I mean, I'm not the first to call it this, to managerialism as yeah. an ideology, which is different from management. Management is a, is a craft and a practice. Uh, managerialism is this notion, uh, much, of which is, much of which comes out of some business schools and is promoted by uh, all sorts of business gurus. Uh, it's the notion that management is not a matter of experience it's not an uh, art. In an, in it's an not area, an it's, 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 it's not an art or craft. It's not based on judgment. It's a matter of technique, yeah. uh, and, and you have so that creates an incentive to use this simplified conception of of incentives in the first place, and then to have these standardized techniques for for measuring, for surveilling, and for rewarding, and and it's part of that managerial ideology. That uh, a manager, a CEO, say, should be able to go from a company that makes one sort of product to a company that does something entirely different, or should be able to go from being a CEO of a Fortune 500 company to being the president of a university, or from going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company to, say, being the head of the Department of State. The notion is all organizations are the same and we can have these standardized techniques and because there are numbers attached, they're scientific and because there are incentives, they must work and so on. That's part of the whole uh, misapplied package, I think. So I, I want to challenge you to think about besides you've done a wonderful job pointing out what's wrong with these things. Yeah. But I think fundamentally with, with this whole trend. And I think the challenge for those of us who are worried about it, whether it's in education, police, medicine, um, uh, all kinds of the running of, of charities, it's nonprofits mm-hmm. generally. Uh, the real challenge is, you know, I think we need a, a better defense uh, of judgment. I'll give you my favorite example of this. And it, it brings in an insight I learned from um, another econ talk guest, Nassim Taleb. Mm-hmm. You know, ta- somebody once, a friend of mine who's um, interested in finance said, uh, yeah, value at risk is a flawed measure. Value at risk is used to measure the riskiness of a portfolio. And in the financial crisis, a lot of firms were overconfident about the riskiness of their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And uh, Talib and others have pointed out, well, yeah, those measures were flawed. Yes. Everybody knew those measures were flawed. Uh, mm-hmm. Anybody in the business knew they were flawed. If you ask them about it, as my friend would say, he said, but they're the best we have. And mm-hmm. his argument was something is better than nothing. And your, mm-hmm. your point, which I think is 100% right, is that, yeah, that's true as long as you keep it as a tool, a diagnostic tool to help you with your judgment. But once it becomes something that becomes, I don't know, reg- regimented, used for pay and performance, used for mm-hmm. assessment, used for uh, promotion, it, it distorts uh, behavior badly. And I, but I'd say it does one other thing. This is the Taleb point, which is, it lulls you into thinking you've you've got your hand and head wrapped around the the, the challenges that you that you face. Right. And, and his example, which I love, is you know, the people who are lost in in Paris. They're supposed to meet somebody at the Arc de Triomphe. This is my version of it, but it's his example. They're supposed to meet somebody at the Arc de Triomphe, and they're lost. This group, and finally, someone says, "Good news! I found a map." Oh, thank goodness! It's a map of New York, but it's <laughs> but it's better than nothing. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and the answer, of course, is it's not. It's actually much worse because it right. deludes you into thinking yes. you're heading toward your goals. And I think the challenge here, and, and my friend in finance when says it's better than nothing, uh, and I say it's not. He says, well, then what's the alternative? And the alternative, of course, is judgment. It's craft. It's art. It's it's a recognition that you do not fully understand the situation. You do not fully understand how to get there from here, literally, in, in the case of an organization akin to that map story. And and you've got to grope. You, you, you don't know the full ramifications of your portfolio at any one time. You might you, you might use metrics to give you a better measure, but you don't know. And I think my argument is, is that that's better than fooling yourself into thinking you're knowing. And a lot of people find that Deeply dissatisfying. <laughs> Say, oh no, we could do better than that. React yes. to that. Those those examples and claims. Yeah. So it, it is this kind of um, scientism on the one hand that that thinks that uh, every that everything can be uh, measured in the way that physicists might measure um, inanimate objects, and that forgets that people are animate objects <laughs> and they react back on. Uh, on on what's being measured, uh, I think that uh, I I don't want to pose the situation as metrics or no metrics. The way I would pose it is metrics uh, with judgment, informed by judgment, and being uh, modified by judgment. And indeed, even metrics together with pay for performance can be functional if what is being measured and rewarded uh, accords with the actual professional goals of the people in the organization. So if you're going to reward a hospital for increasing uh, the level of, of safety, uh, that is something, and you're going to even reward the physicians uh, on the basis of those safety measures, that may actually boost the physicians' uh intrinsic motivation because there's this link between what they themselves know that uh, know that they would like to happen and what is being uh, measured and rewarded. So in that sense, you know, uh, e even uh, pay for pay for measured performance uh, can work depending on, as I say, what the goals are. And, and then there's the question of who has input into uh, setting the measurements, and that's a matter of professional judgment too. And then of judging, as I've said before, how relatively important those measurements are compared to others and what might be the extenuating circumstances. A lot of life in business and in organizations is a matter of extenuating circumstances, that is, things that are beyond the framework that you set out with in the first place. Uh, so I think the, it, it's not a matter of metrics or judgment. It's the two of them uh, functioning together. But as you say, there are times in uh, this, this uh, metric fixation, this, this trinity of, uh, of uh, measuring, rewarding, and making public, uh, it seems like a magic bullet in so many situations. And there are lots of situations in, in organizations, in the field of education, in medicine, in, and so on, where we really would like to have better outcomes, but, but the magic bullet often doesn't work. I'm going to say something a little bit radical. Okay. Get your reaction. I, it, it, your book encouraged me to think about 
in this conversation encouraged me to think about the what I, what I would call maybe meta incentives or um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have a word for it, but let me let me give you the layout what I'm thinking. Okay. So if you say to a to someone, I, I think principals of a school, I'm about an elementary school now or a mm-hmm. high school, K through 12, principals of a school should be allowed to give out bonuses based on performance of their teachers. Uh-huh. And when I've suggested that, the typical mm-hmm. answer I get back from people who are uneasy with that is the following. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're prejudiced. They mm-hmm. don't really – they shouldn't be entitled to indulge their personal favorites, say, or the people who are easy to get along with. They don't really – they're not going to do a good job. Mm-hmm. So we need some objective measure, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's test scores or others, to measure performance. And my reaction to that is a good principal mm-hmm. knows exactly who the good teachers are in their school, mm-hmm. and they right. know who the bad teachers are. And you don't need a test. In fact, the test mm-hmm. misleads you, as you've pointed out. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, what you're really saying is in the public school system, for example, and maybe even in the, some private schools, the principals have too much leeway. There's no market check on them. True, they – if they do their – if they're well-trained and they're skilled and they have good judgment, they could run a school really well with lots of authority and lots of power, but they're too unaccountable. And what these these metrics allow us to do is to constrain their discretion, mm-hmm. and that's fundamentally uh, – to me, that I, I, just what I realized. It's just a different way of saying that, that there's no attractive way – to um, incentivize the principal. And so, therefore, we want to remove discretion, go to these objective measures. And I'm going to make the the radical argument is is as we've expanded the reach of government and the size of government, inevitably, we have to try to find ways to um, restrain and incentivize uh, politicians, bureaucrats, administrators, et cetera, and they're inevitably going to be flawed, like we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in a an organization, I mean, the analogy would be uh, in, in a in a in a financial firm where people are it's a partnership where they're investing their own money. They're not mm-hmm. going to use these goofy measures that, to justify to outside investors that they've done a good job. They're going to know inside whether they did a good job or not, more or less. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're they have biases. Yes, they can self deceive, but they're spending their own money. As we move to worlds and situations where more and more people are spending other people's money, we have to try to find ways to incentivize them correctly, and they're inevitably going to be terribly flawed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so, first of all, uh, in, in terms of what you said about how this works in finance, um, I think that's an important point. You know, uh, one might think if one was uh, naive. Uh, or if one had gone to business school, that uh, the way in which people in finance are to be incentivized is purely on the basis of how much profit they bring into the firm. And that is certainly one of the ways in which they are incentivized. But as you say, people in the firm uh, know what other roles these people have been playing in mentoring others and cooperating and bringing in new ideas and taking initiative and so on. So they take that. So I'm saying in a profit-making business, uh, if it's well run, they take such things, such intangible things, unmeasurable things into account in rewarding. Uh, 
when it when it comes to uh, when it comes to schools and principals and so on, yes, uh, I guess I would say the truth is there are dangers on each end. On the one hand, of agreed giving the principal leeway and the, and that that is to say discretion, which leaves room for judgment, which creates the possibility of on the one hand, bias and prejudice, and from the point of view of his subordinates, of fawning behavior. Uh, uh, I would say that we've become so focused on that set of dangers that the pendulum has gone way too far in the other direction to uh, eliminate or minimize the role of judgment and discretion. And that's what my book is trying to help counteract. It's very well said. The only point I'd add on the case of finance, and I'm going to broaden it a little bit, is that I don't just care about whether you're cooperative and so on. I also care about, say, the the riskiness of the portfolio. I just don't I don't care mm-hmm. just about the return. Yes. I'm in a I'm in a bit of a little minor Twitter war today mm-hmm. about whether uh the Ben Bernanke, uh uh Paulson and Geithner did a good job in dealing with the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And I suggested they did not. Uh, and, and everyone comes back to me with, yeah, but look how long the recovery's has gone along, as if that were the only metric. Uh, obvious counterpoint to that is, well, it's been a pretty mediocre recovery, but that's not my real point. My real point is that by rewarding bad actors in that situation, they sowed the seeds for the next crisis. Mm-hmm. That next crisis will not be put at their door. It'll be put at whoever's in charge at that point. Yes. And I think the relentless praise for short-term results is incredibly dangerous. Um, uh-huh. I'm not saying I, I'm right. I, I'm not uh-huh. saying that – in fact, I don't look particularly right right now because I haven't had another crisis. Things look pretty uh-huh. good. I'm open to the possibility that they did a good job. But my real point isn't that they did a bad job because the next crisis. It's all these other subtle things about faith in democracy, faith in capitalism, uh, the rewarding of cronies that the – financial crisis solutions uh, dealt in. Those are the things that to me are intangible and don't get laid at their door. So I, I do think, yes, you're right. You have to be careful. Judgment has got its own risks, but the other direction's really, really dangerous too. Agreed. Uh, let's close with talk about transparency because you say something um, delightfully shocking toward the end of the book, which is uh, transparency can be a bad thing. Everyone thinks that particularly with government, Mm -hmm. uh, because they're, quote, working for us, supposedly, that more transparency is better. You take a different approach uh, and suggest some costs to transparency. What are they? Yes. So I try to point out that there are lots of uh, organizational contexts and lots of relations in human life when transparency is counterproductive, Uh, starting with the relationship with one's spouse. Uh, Do you really want... Uh, my spouse pointed this out to me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you really want to know everything that your spouse has done or is thinking? Uh, no. In fact, uh, Ign- ignorance as, is bliss. Ignorance is bliss, and as his <laughs> <Sometimes> philosopher, <anyway. laughs> as his philosopher Moshe Halbertal has pointed out, the whole possibility of having intimacy with people depends on on our thoughts and ideas not being transparent to most others most of the time. So we sort of selectively make them transparent to others. And that's true. Uh, so that's true starting with the most uh, intimate relations like marriage. But it's also very true in uh, various parts of 
government. So, for example, uh, to take something that bothers me a great deal, uh, the cult of Snowden and the uh, of Edward Snowden and the cult of WikiLeaksism. It's based on the notion that making everything the government does public and transparent must be a good thing because sunlight is the best disinfectant and, and so on, you know, all the cliches. Well, the truth is intelligence agencies to begin with uh, can't function if what they're doing uh, is known to our uh, enemies and antagonists. Uh, many elements of statecraft uh, are, imp- are based upon having uh, information that is not public. Uh, many elements of, of politics, especially of political negotiation, uh, is based upon not having all the considerations in the, go- in the negotiations made public because there are various public interest groups uh, and if you're a politician uh, and you're going to get something done, you almost by ne- by definition have to compromise, which from the point of view of particular public interest groups uh, is seen as uh, essentially betrayal and treason. So if negotiations take place, uh, political negotiations take place entirely in public or in a transparent way, uh, then they're just not going to get done. And uh, I think it's Cass Sunstein who's made the point that if if deliberations within the government uh, among civil servants or policymakers are open to being made public, that means that those people are simply not – and those people have to deal with issues that are tricky from a public point of view, that is, are going to alienate one or another part of the public, uh, they're simply not going to – convey their views honestly and openly uh, to other policymakers, knowing that those could be made public. So in, in all of those areas and more, there are limits to the virtues of transparency. And well, I, again, I, as you pointed out earlier, I, you know, there are trade-offs here. I think there were some serious costs of Snowden's um, Revelations, but it it did in a democracy let some people know about let the voters and and citizens know about something that was going on the extent of it, which I think was not fully imagined. So that there are benefits from that. The question is how how much sunshine is it always one hundred percent? The answer is clearly no, as as you point out with discussion. Discussion has to allow if it's going to be fruitful the give and take mm-hmm. of ideas, and inevitably if it's free flowing, you should and this is. Always my worry in having a conversation with an econ talk guest. You know, I'm going to say something that's inappropriate, that's wrong, literally. Mm-hmm. But of course, if, if that's my fear, I'm going to just script a bunch of questions in advance and, and just read them out and be safe. Mm-hmm. And that's a disaster for, for knowledge and the production of, of wisdom and, and understanding and learning. And that's true in an organization as well. So I think this is a really interesting topic. It goes way beyond the scope of your book that mm-hmm. that the revelation of every uh, jot and tittle of conversation that goes on is going – the way people respond to that metric is they stop talking. Right, <laughs> and and right. that's really what – you know to think about the surgery example, mm-hmm. it, it seems reasonable that you should know how effective a hospital is. And, and when you go to a doctor, how many people have died under the knife of that doctor. But if that's the way people are going to judge doctors, then they're going to be encouraged not to take heart difficult surgeries, and that's not a good thing. So 
a lot of this, I think, ultimately comes down to the fact that you, you got to have some understanding and knowledge about um, the imperfection of measurement. And that's really hard for us, I think, as a species. Uh, it, it's hard for us as a species. It's even harder under the influence of several larger cultural factors, the aura of modern science, the aura nowadays of data and big data, where often uh, institutions assume that uh, someone, someone, will, someone has, a, has a way of analyzing a lot of data, so they better come up with questions to ask that data. <laughs> uh, and, and also this sort of cult of managerialism uh, that I mentioned, and this simplified conception of human motivation. So you put all those things together, and yes, there's this over, there's this overconfidence in measurement and underrating of the role of judgment and experience. My guest today has been Jerry Mueller. His book is The Tyranny of Metrics. Jerry, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.